Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. We have a wonderful guest. Her name is Kim Bailey. She's going to be with us in just a second. But this is the first part where we just kind of check in on each other. Right. They call it a group chat. Okay. Well, I, 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 I like that. I mean, there's only two of us talking right now. I'm not but there's going to be three. There will be. That's yeah. true. So we're just getting to know each other. And yeah. you've had a little rough start to the morning. We had an incident. And, and that happens. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that got me to thinking, uh, you know, uh, people probably think that you're a psychiatrist and a therapist and, and you know. Or a all, psychologist. Whatever. How long have we been doing this? A couple of years. Four. Um, you have bad days. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's going to be a bad day. It was a rough start to the day. And if I preach, you know, if I believe what I preach, then, you know, every moment is a chance to start again, as the Buddha said. So we're going to have a great day after this. But, yeah, we had a little incident. Security got called. It was a thing. And, and But that happened. And it – fortunately, not very often in – the world where I work, but it does happen sometimes, and it's always disappointing when it does. But everybody's safe, and and we're all okay. But yeah, it was a little stressful way to start the day. But that wanted me to. That makes me want to bring up the topic of being okay. Like everybody thinks that their life has to be awesome. Everyone thinks their life has to be perfect. And when you look at Instagram, you look at Facebook, you look at Snapchat, you look yeah, at whatever social it is, media phenomenon. Everybody's yeah. putting their best foot forward twenty four seven. Uh, the reality, or pretending to, yeah, and, yeah. And that, but they want you to believe that that's how their life is, sure. constantly. Or you're just getting a snapshot of wh- what they enjoy about their life, so it adds up to you know. There's no bad on there, and so and, and I remember in my recovery, I I had to be okay with just being okay, right? That like things weren't horrible, they weren't awesome, but I I wasn't in jail. I, I, I wasn't drunk, and it was just okay to be okay. And I think we need a, a little refresher to let people know that okay is probably the standard for what most people thrive for. Or, Well, I like what you're talking about because it's something I talk with people about a lot. In fact, last night I can remember having a conversation very similar to this. We were talking about the human being has a negativity bias. Mm-hmm. That's sort of this built-in mechanism to see danger and negative things in our environment to keep us safe. Problem is we don't really need it as much as we we have it. And so you can have a day. And this is how I like to have people carve up their day. Instead of saying I had a good day or a bad day, all or nothing, that's not a great way to do it. I would like a person to say at the end of the day, well, how did my day go? I'm going to split it into two parts. The not so good stuff and the neutral to positive. Neutral to positive. I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. We need to lump neutral in with positive. And guess what? Most of your day is neutral. It's average. It's fine. But see, I think in my mind, in most people's mind, I think they lump neutral and negative yeah, in the same category. But it's not. Neutral is just fine. Neutral is like, hey, I had a sandwich. It was fine. So neutral to me is okay. Yeah. 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 And so Typically, when I have people do that exercise, they'll come back and their neutral to positive will take up way more than 90% of their day. Mm. And the negative, which may be high value things sometimes if you got in a car accident or you got fired, but that's a smaller part of your day. Typically, the things that don't go well is you stumbled and looked silly going into work or you know whatever, right? Or you burned your toast or that kind of stuff. But Sometimes with that negativity bias, that's all we see sort of in a myopic way, and then it feels like the whole day was a wreck. So back to my morning, that would be easy to do. And with my personality, I think I'm a nice 
average blend of optimistic and pessimistic. I, I'm not like you where I think you're almost all optimistic all the time, mm-hmm. which is great. And so I work on that, to, to be honest with people. And I, I have to talk myself as I'm driving over here. I'm like, okay, that was a small part of my day. It took up about 90 minutes of, of my morning. Uh, it was a rough thing. Everybody's fine now and everything's fine. And the rest of my day can be neutral to positive. So, you, you know, you ha- kind of have to talk yourself into it. Even the psychologist sometimes has to do that. I think human nature is such that we it's easier to focus or... Uh centralize the negativity. Like I was talking to Kim. Uh, she's our guest. We're going to introduce her in just a second. But even I find myself doing it. Whether we have something on Facebook or Instagram where something's going positive. And I will look at the comments and there will be 98% positive mm-hmm. and 2% negative. And instead of in my head going, hey, look, 98% people are reacting positively to this news. I focus on the 2% who are not. And right. for some reason, those 2% get all my energy and not the 98% yeah. that are, 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 are praising us and saying we're doing wonderful things. That's the negativity bias. It's a self-protection, like what's dangerous in my environment, that's going to get the majority of my attention. All the good stuff is nice, but I don't focus on it, which is a problem because we don't really need that in our life, especially on something like Facebook. I could spend 40 minutes trying to talk those 2% into seeing it our way, right? or I could spend the rest of the time on the 98% saying, thank you, we appreciate your sport. Thank you for supporting us and allowing us to do what we do. Exactly. I, I usually tell people, turn it into a school grade. Mm. If you got 98%, how would you feel on your test? Let's Stoked. go. Stoked. Done. Super happy. Yeah. So you got an A. You're good. Hey, uh, before we get to our guest, I want to just say one word and I want to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Resentment. Avoid it. How do you do that? <sighs> Own your part of social interactions. Don't do things that you think are going to force another person to be happy with you. Do things that you want to do. And if it makes other people happy, if they pick up that opportunity for happiness that you offered them, that's great because that makes us happy too. I'm going to butcher this word. It's But otherwise you resent peace pull because they're not doing what you expected them to do, and, and we can't expect people to always respond the way we want them to. Is that being altruistic? Is, is, did I say that word right? Altruistic? Um, I mean, there's an altruistic aspect to that. You're doing things genuinely and genuinely honestly because for you yourself. like to, yeah. and, and that's what it is with, yeah. with nothing in return expected. Right. For example, if you saw somebody down in the lobby here at KSL, I don't know if it, I get the opportunity to walk around with Casey Scott places and he knows everybody i try to well you do you do a great job of it it's a compliment i'm giving you a oh, huge okay. compliment thank you you know everybody they say hi to you You're like what if one time you were like you saw somebody and i know you like to brighten people's day and you were like hey what's happening and you you got no real response out of them now if you were being altruistic and you were like hey i did that because i wanted to and he didn't pick up the gift i gave him i was trying to give him a little sunshine he didn't pick it up that's his choice i don't know what's going on with that guy i it doesn't have i don't have to be upset with him for not responding the way i expected him to cuz i would imagine you expect most people to respond positively to you because i would say 
darn near 100% of people do. But if they don't, it doesn't stop me from doing it. Right, because, because I don't you do own it. For it. The, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it, to be honest, it makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> you, it, you know? And that's, that's owning your role in the social interaction and saying, well, you know, I, I hope they're okay, but I'm not going to be resentful that they didn't respond the way I wanted them to. I love it. That's why I love having him in here, Kimberly. He is amazing. <laughs> He's a fountain of knowledge, Dr. Matt Woolley is. Well, makes some, total sense. If you just talk a lot of words, it, it, it's kind of ties together eventually. I'm buying whatever you're selling. All right, man. Uh, Kimberly Bailey is our guest today. Kim, how are you? Good. How are you? So you reached out to me on Facebook. I did. You said you listened to us on the Spotify. She's part of the 98%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What made you want to share your story? Because um, for me, sharing my story is to give hope to others that you can change and that recovery is possible. Like, I, my life story is so crazy and... um, I had so many people that lost hope in me over and over and over and over again. And um, I just got to a point where I got sick of it. And I decided, you know, I'm going to, uh, speaking of when you're talking about doing it for yourself, I thought, you know, why am I living like this? Well, I am not happy. Like, what do I need to do to make myself happy? And so I, instead of proving everybody wrong, I wanted to prove myself right. Mm. And so. It's a big um, difference, isn't it? So that's how I changed my life. And so, so many people had lost hope in me, but now all those people lost hope in me see that recovery is possible and that your life can change for the better and that you can live a happy, peaceful, joyful, whatever it may be that your recovery is about, you can live that and it is possible to achieve. I know you're not supposed to ask a lady your age, but I'm going to. I'm going to be 52 this year. Uh, how hey, many, me too. Nice job. High five. <laughs> how many years do you think you were in active addiction? 28. 28. From the time I was 16 years old. So more than half your life. Until <clears throat> I was 40. So from I started when I was 16 years old, and then um, I completely quit um, when I was 44 years old. Congratulations. Thank you. And doing wonderful things. We're going to find out more about Kimberly's story. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Kim Bailey, uh, who said she got sober at the age of 44. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but your journey started at 16, but we want to hear a little bit before that. So give us, uh, you know, the origin story, if you will, of Kim Bailey. So I grew up, so I was born, um, so both my parents actually are very, like, they're just amazing. Um, we grew up in a household where my dad worked for the state of Utah, and my mom worked for a computer chip company. So I, I always remember that we never went without anything. My parents always provided, it's just me and my brother, that's it. He's um, three years younger than me. And um, I never, there was never any issues that like sparked me to go down the trail that I did. Like I had a great, happy childhood. Like we, we did camping, we did family reunions, we did all kinds of things that were productive and normal. And then, um, yeah. And then when I turned, 
got into high school, I um. So, like, as a young child, you had friends. You did oh, yeah. sports. Yeah, I, yeah. I did. Like, I didn't do any sports, but I had a lot of friends. I did a lot of sleepovers with friends. Like, that was my favorite thing to do. Was I had friends that three girls that were all sisters, and they had a huge family, and I was drawn to that. I was drawn to the bond that they all had, and so I was always like going to sleepovers at their house and um, participating in like going to Lagoon and just, I mean, all kinds of things. Like, I was a very active child. Very, very active. And everything, like my parents, my dad was pretty strict, but he wasn't so strict that it was unhealthy. Um, he expected, ha- he had expectations for us, like graduate high school, get your driver's license, get good grades, you know, these kind of things. They were expectations, but they weren't crossing boundaries that it was unhealthy and it caused me any kind of like mental health issues or anything like that within our family. So, yeah. But things started to take a turn when you entered the high school? I did. So um, the fr- the friends I grew up with, um, their next-door neighbor, they had older brothers. And these older brothers were um, – they were so they were in college. Um, I was 16 years old. And they were throwing a party at one night at their house. And so I just decided out of temptation. Basically, it wasn't like peer pressure or anything like that until I got into the party. But it was temptation like – I want to go see what this is about. Like, I want to go see what these older guys are doing. And I want to, you know, that type of thing. When you're 16, you start getting attracted to guys. And that's how it was. And so... That um, seems like pretty typical teenage curiosity, yeah. though, right? Like, I mean, yeah. the 80s made a killing making movies off of that <laughs> premise right, right there. But, but whether right. you're a, a boy and it's older girls or a girl and it's older boys, I mean, you're kind of attracted to them and they mm-hmm. seem cool and... You know, yeah, I think that that seems pretty. So typical. you were drawn in, and so you. So I was drawn into this party, and I went. Did you um, go solo? Um, actually, I was with my, the friends that I grew up with. Like, mm-hmm. We all went into this. Um, I went into this party, and there was alcohol and marijuana, and like, I remember them saying, "Come on, just do it, just do it, just do it. We're gonna play this game, this beer drinking game, and let's just do this." And they seemed to. Um, as they were playing this beer drinking game, they were always picking on me to hurry and drink it. Like, oh, Kim won, do it. Kim won, go, you know, drink, drink, drink. So it was kind of like inside the party, it was peer pressure. Like, just and try this. And kind of predatory, if, if yeah. you ask me. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say that there's, there's some lines that are getting crossed there with college boys and teenage girls. Oh, very girls. much so. And so mm-hmm. I also smoked pot with them. Um, that, all of these things were very first for me. Like, I never had done any of this until that night of the party. What was your family culture and expectations around drugs and alcohol? Um, so on my dad's side of the family, there's a few alcoholics. And so, um, you know, my dad has told me stories now um, that he used to, you know, go and drink. Like he would, when my mom and him first got married, he would take off to Park City with his friends and go get drunk and then come home and that type of thing. But Were you members they of never, the- ever, ever had that type of behavior in our household, like none whatsoever. There was alcohol in our house, but I never seen my parents drink, Mm. ever. So you you weren't LDS? No, we were not LDS. And so at any point, do you remember them sitting down and talking to you about drugs and alcohol, or was mostly information you received from, like, school? It was mostly, like, school, and it was mostly, like, the example that my parents set. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, 
So interestingly, they had alcohol in the home, but you never saw them drinking. No. So they were sort of modeling you can have alcohol and be in control of your life. Like, exactly. Like they and weren't modeling the opposite of partying hard or doing those kind of things. Exactly. Like I think that my parents kept alcohol in the house for when like family and guests came over. They could mm-hmm. mix a drink. But like I said, we never seen, never seen our parents do and anything you, like that. You weren't tempted to – Nick a little drink when parents weren't around? Not until after uh, I went to the party. Because Casey knows you can't uh, fill the vodka bottle up with water and freeze it. Because vodka doesn't freeze. <laughs> I found out the hard way. <laughs> and uh, after um, after I was tr- I went through the trauma that I did at the party, um, I started like deviling into the alcohol that my parents had, and then I'd fill it up with water. And I think that there was a couple times that my dad was like, oh, something's going Suspicious, on here. Huh? But nothing was well, said. How about your friends that went to the party with you? Did they drink also that night? They did, yes. Yeah. You, we all you, did. you mentioned trauma. So I'm guessing things took a turn for the worst. They did. So after I was, I was pretty inebriated um, for the first time drinking, I just... I remember feeling like um like I was going to pass out, like I just wasn't all the way there. And um, one of the older guys, a college guy, um, coerced me into the garage where his car was parked. He had like a little pickup truck, and we sat on the tailgate, and um, he uh, started fondling me and doing this, and then basically I ended up into rape. Mm. Um, I told him no over and over and over again, and then years later I found out because the garage had windows on it, years later I found out that the people at the party were watching in oh. as this was going on. Oh, wow. And then um, the next day, so I ended up staying the night at the house, and the next day I went home, and I remember I remember feeling like, um, I, like abused, like I was just, like I didn't know what to do. You like were. I was confused. You know you were. Yeah, and so I went home, and my mom just gave me this look like, what is wrong with you? And I couldn't even talk about it. Like I, I, like now to this day, my parents pretty much don't know this whole story. They're arguing it now. But um, my, I remember my mom just looking at me, and I thought, oh, she thinks I'm disgusting, and you know. And she didn't even say a word. She didn't nothing, nothing. It was just tapes I was playing in my head at that time as to reliving everything that was going on. And so I lived in those memories and those thoughts. And then I started to um, to cover up the emotions. I started drinking. Started hanging out with other people in crowds that were doing this kind of behavior, and I was trying to fit in. I just didn't. I never. I never felt like I fit in after that. Like I just felt like I was lost all the time, and so I would gravitate towards all these um, enticing things that people were doing, or all these temptations that were people were doing, trying to find that acceptance and where I belonged because I just had no sense of that after that point. Yeah, and you know, it takes a lot of courage to talk about something like that in public. So, I think it's helpful for other people to relate to your story. So, it sounds strange, but thank you for being willing to be open and honest mm-hmm. and and um share your story with with people who will benefit. Uh a comment is that you know, one of the uh, when a person is assaulted, especially a young person who doesn't have much life experience and doesn't quite know what to do with an experience like you had. The the really tragic thing is the the assault in a way continues on 
in how you replay it and how you think about yourself for many years to come um, after the actual incident. That night was over, but it sounds like you carried it with you. And a lot of people, especially young people, teenagers, feel responsible, like I should have done this or I could have done that. Or like you said, she, my mom thinks I'm disgusting now. Or, you know, the, 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 the personal hit it takes on your sense of self is also part of the the tragic outcome of being assaulted. Um, was there a time in your adolescence when you ever divulged this to anyone and got some support or help? I didn't. Not until, like, um, for me, it was, like, almost forbidden. Like, it was like, um, don't, if you ask for help, you're really wounded. You're really... Like, you're really bad if you're asking for help and you're asking to try to get some type of therapy. And I felt like I, that's the part that I was at is I was like, I was scared to divulge anything. I was scared of the outcome. I was scared of what my parents were going to think of me. Um, well, we're the same age. I think when I was 16, I wouldn't have even known who to talk to, really. Right, and I didn't. Right? We didn't have the same resources or culture around therapy, help, and support that we have today. There weren't hotlines that I was aware of. And so that... You know, people growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I think it was kind of a time where, yeah, you maybe kept that to yourself partly because you didn't know where to go and partly, like you said, it was sort of shameful in a way to, yeah. to bring it up. So did, was, your, was your plan then, and I, maybe you didn't have a plan, was to bury it, hide it, run from it? Uh, I mean, you said that it, it made you seek uh, alternative Things to do for excitement or to find your place to fit in. What were you looking for? I was looking for like love and acceptance. Like I was looking for, I just felt like I was not worthy of love. I was not worthy of somebody actually caring about me in a way that they wouldn't assault me or that they wouldn't take advantage of me. And I always like strive for that. Um, I ended up doing just crazy things in my life um, over the years. Like, um, like right after that happened, I started stealing my parents' credit cards and going and buying alcohol and sharing that with the people that were doing that because that's where that's where I felt like I belong. Like, okay, these people are just as screwed up as I am, and so you know we can all get together and just bond type of thing. And like, I just kept going and going and going, and. Um, Eventually, like it, I ended up in prison. I, I, but it seemed I, like it turned pretty quick. You, it did. You, you know, from from sixteen to having sleepovers with your best friends, who you went to the first party with, to now a whole new group of friends stealing your parents' alcohol and their credit cards. And what did your parents say when that personality switch happened? I don't think my parents knew what to do. Like you said back then, in that time, like they they didn't know what to do. Like they had no clue. Um, I remember that I had done so much damage to my mom and dad's credit card that they literally drove me to the jail and said, like, here, like, we don't know what to do with her anymore. She's out of control. Like, we don't know what to do with her. And um, and that was my first experience with that. And then, like, it just kept escalating. Like, I could never I could never land in one spot. I'd get home and I would have my parents love and acceptance and stuff like that. But it's like I like I just felt like I didn't deserve it. Like, I just felt I was always so damaged and like all these mental health things started happening to me. Like I started suffering from anxiety and depression and like all of these things started compounding on me. And then my parents did um, admit me into a psychiatric hospital and um, they diagnosed me with bipolar and just all these other things that, 
years later, I found out that that's that wasn't the case. What I was suffering from, but they didn't know back then like what to do. Like they just had no clue. Yeah, the the mental health world around the issue of trauma is much more well informed now. Yes, we have a lot more resources. We have therapies that have been developed around trauma, and we understand now that especially a young person, their behavior may look bipolar, mm-hmm. but the reality is if we haven't tested or, you know, investigated for trauma, trauma often, the symptoms of trauma often mimic other disorders. And so a lot of misdiagnoses can, they can still happen, of course, but definitely happen more often. So your parents took you to the jail uh, and said, we can't handle her. What did the jail say? They only kept me overnight. And I just remember I just bawled and bawled and bawled. And I thought, and at that point, I was like, that, that's when I felt like, oh, they don't love me. They just dropped me, out, dropped me off of the jail. They don't love me. There's another person that doesn't love me. The crowd of friends that I had found out about everything that had happened at the party so that they disassociated with me. And so I, I was alone. Like, I just, I felt like I was totally alone. So uh, did you graduate high school? I graduated high school in prison because I ended up, um, I ended up having a daughter when I was at 20 and, um, and then I was good after I had my daughter for like two years and I didn't drink anything. I stayed home. I was a mom. I was doing those kind of things. But then those feelings start creeping back up in me of like, you're not worthy. You're not a good mom. You're going to damage your child. You're going to make her worse than what she, you know, what you are. And so I just started running again and I started hanging out at bars. Um, I got introduced to back then it was crank with, you know, which is meth now. And um, I started doing that kind of stuff. And that really, like, threw me for through a loop. I mean, my, my brain function just, like, totally went bizarre in that whole entire scenario. And then I just kept, over and over again, I would steal people's money and go, and now I was buying drugs. Now I was buying drugs to support my habit and fit in where I could fit in with the crowd that was doing these kind of things. And I ended up going to prison when I was 20... Four, I believe it was twenty four, twenty five, and then this is your first time in prison, mm-hmm. and that's where you graduated from high school. I did. So you had dropped out of high school as an adolescent. Yes. Uh, we, after that party, I decided I cannot face anybody in school, and so I talked to my parents. I conned my parents actually, and I said, "Listen, I want to go to an alternative school where I can just do these packets." And I can just get credits for doing these packets. And then I'll go get a job and I'll start supporting myself and start doing these things. I basically conned my parents. Like my parents had no clue about anything in this party. Like they just had no clue. But they they agreed to let me drop out of school and do those kind of things. So this this party was really a defining moment oh, in your early totally. life in a in a negative way, a traumatic way. And it seemed like the theme that took over after that was trying to find acceptance. Mm-hmm. But because you felt damaged and, and felt unworthy of the love that you'd had previously with friends and family, you were seeking that um, acceptance with kind of the wrong crowd, so to speak. Huh? Oh, it's totally. And it just continued. It just continued on and on and on. I would meet – I would – it just depended on the crowd that I was – I would totally meet guys – I would get in these relationships with the most toxic people you could possibly even think of. And then that's when I met another guy and I started doing cocaine and crack. 
And I ended up on a high-speed chase in Las Vegas with this guy. Wow. And um, just things just kept escalating worse and worse and worse and worse. And nowhere did anybody offer me any help, like in the system, like in the criminal justice system. Nobody said, you know, you need to do this therapy, you need to do this. They just continued to put me in prison, let me out. I would gravitate towards whoever I could find, and I would use whatever drug they were using. It ended up being like I went from cocaine and crack that I went to started doing heroin. And so I ended up picking up a needle and started shooting up heroin. And that was a stint that I did on that whole entire situation with another guy that was totally toxic. And I would just gravitate into these relationships trying to find acceptance. And it would always be the same story. I would do the prison time. I would get out, find a guy and do whatever he's doing and then I would go back to prison for violating for doing drugs or for stealing again or for whatever the hell I was doing that was I just and I I totally disappointed my parents and hurt my parents so much in the whole entire thing that I was doing and then my parents ended up having to raise my daughter because I was so messed up that um like I said I didn't feel worthy to be a mom then I just felt the shame and the guilt of everything that I was doing. And so I just could never, ever face that situation or that relationship with any of them. How many times did you uh, spend how, – how many stints in jail or prison did you have, do you think? There's so many that I can't even count. Wow. One of my little – soapboxes that I've been on on this show before is that the punishment cycle doesn't work. No. You know, just punishing people and punitive. This, uh, yeah, the punitive system doesn't work. And that's why I'm a big advocate of things like drug court and other things that we have now where we're recognizing that the reason the person is a repeat offender in in something especially when it has to do with drugs and and stealing and things like that is because they need help. They need help and support. And not everybody's in the right frame of mind at the right time to accept it, but at least we are seeing some some options in, I forget, in the system now. We had a guest on the podcast who said he went to prison for stealing cars. So he went to prison for car theft. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't what his problem was. Yeah, he did steal the car, but he was still in the car to feed his drug habit. Right. And so, I mean, he was like, and so to to the to the the state or the jail or the prison, he looked like a common car thief. When in actual, he was a drug addict, and he was trying to feed his 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 habit, and that was just a way to feed it. And so he was getting in trouble for stealing the cars, which he rightfully should. But nobody was ever talking about his drug habit, right? And I I hope the listener understands that I'm not advocating for not being responsible for your behavior. What I am advocating for is let's get down to the causes, yeah, right. And when a person is uh, got their addict brain on, as you know, as you're you had in your life, you make decisions that later you think, gosh, I would never do that when I'm sober. That's not who I am. Kim, you've been in and out of prison and jail so many times that you can't even count. Mm -hmm. Um, And while you're in and out and and caught yourself in a vicious circle, um, you know, did your parents try to help you in any way? Did they say anything? My parents always like reached out to try and help me. And then, then I just, I would never... I would never accept it. I would never believe um, that they – I just got to a point where I didn't believe anybody. I didn't trust anybody. I had no trust with anybody. I had the biggest trust issues like, okay, so if I do this, like what do you want in return? And um, and I just don't – I just – everything that they offered, I just was not willing to live up to it. 
and um and so at any point during uh your time in and out of prison and jail did you think to yourself you were an addict or I'm just curious of your mindset. Did- oh, yeah. So, like, when I would go into prison, I was still doing the same things. I was gravitating towards the people that were messing up and that were doing drugs in prison. I was still gravitating towards these people, and I was still trying to be part of the big social system in the prison system and um, be that, like, I guess, I don't even know if it's gangster or if it's just the big head honcho. Boss like, lady. Don't don't mess with me type thing. And so I was gravitating to where I, I was always doing that in the prison, in and out, in and out, in and out. And then um, eight years ago, um, I met somebody and um, I was just in the throes of it. Like I just, he, he kept on encouraging me like, you need to change, you need to change, you need to change. And I had these charges that I was facing and they ended up sending me um, back to prison, back to jail. Um, and this is the part that I was revealing to Casey earlier. I went to Salt Lake County Jail and um, I just totally lost my mind. I had a complete like nervous breakdown. Um, I was on suicide watch. They had me in a turtle suit naked. Um, I just, and then I started, um, I found a sharp object that happened to be in the room and I just started cutting on my arms and it wasn't like a deep cut. It was just like superficial cuts, but it looked like, you know, like, what is she doing? Like she's losing her mind. And so they, um, transported me to, I remember this very vividly. I was stark naked and they put me on the hospital, um, bed it goes into the ambulance and they wheeled me through booking and everybody's seen me with no clothes on mm. and they didn't cover you up they did not cover me up one bit hmm. and they put me in the ambulance and i remember the ambulance driver saying why is she naked like where are her clothes like what are we doing like what's going on and um they took me to the hospital and they were shooting me up with ativan because i was literally like tearing up my skin and just i just was losing it and um they put me up in a hospital room after they and they got me to calm down by shooting me up with Valium and Ativan and different kinds of things to calm me down. And so I was kind of in and out of consciousness. I was like sleeping um, and then I'd wake up and I would freak out again. And um, anyways, uh, when I woke up at one point, an officer that was supposed to be watching over me was trying to sexually assault me again. Oh, oh my goodness. And so... Um, I went back to the jail and I revealed it to one of the officers there and they made my life hell in the jail, made my life hell in the Salt Lake County jail. Um, They would write me up for everything. I couldn't use the phone. I couldn't contact anybody on the streets. I couldn't, nothing. I had no communication outside of just being in a prison cell and that's it. Like no coming out to shower, maybe once a day. Um, and then I was locked down the rest of the time and they made it so that I could not have any communication with anybody in the outside world. Do you feel like they were attempting to protect this officer? That I don't you know were what accusing? they were doing. Um, yeah. you know, and like I said, like even my mind wasn't completely right at that time, but it just, I felt very punished. And so I went back in front of the judge and I said, send me back to prison. And I went back to the prison and, um, I did heroin one time. It's called RNO. You kind of you're on like a 23 hour lockdown when you first get to the prison, and a girl had heroin in there, and I did it one time. And then I thought to myself, "What are you doing? Like you have got to pull out of this, and you have got to change. Like you are going to continue to live this life, and this is not what you really want." 
And so I sought every kind of treatment, every kind of help I could possibly get while I was in the prison this time. And, um, and I did their drug program. And I had never been offered the drug program the whole entire time that I'd been doing the prison system. Mm-hmm. And I So finally, many times that you can't even count. So many times I can't even count. And I finally did the drug program. And they gave me a therapist. And, yeah, he wasn't the greatest, but he also helped me at the same time. And I walked through everything. And I walked through all the traumas that I've been through. And my trauma timeline of, you know, this occurred, this occurred, this occurred, this occurred. And now what are you going to do? So was that the first time you'd actually sat down with somebody and talked about these traumas in your life? The first time. You know, we've had a lot of people, and I can say it for myself too, is that, you know, starting from a young age to when you decide that you're going to find recovery, that you say something out loud, that that's the first time that those Mm -hmm. words have ever been uttered out loud. But you've been carrying those words and those, those thoughts around for years right. and, and, and accessing those memories for years and, 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 and using those as a guide to what you're doing in life. And then the first time you say it out loud, it, 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 it's it, real. It's real. Mm-hmm. You feel it. You feel it deep down, like in your gut. Like you just, you just feel it. It just rocks your body when you say, like, what are you doing? Like, this is not, this is not the life you want to live. Wow. And so, I mean, I got chills. So you started to to work on your program. And right. And the guy that I met that I was talking about previously that was saying, like, what are you doing? Like, uh, this is unacceptable. He stood by me through the whole entire time. And we, we, we talked. We talked all the time. And I never had anybody stand beside me and walk me through what I had to do by serving my, you know, serving my time. And, um... I decided when I got it, when I was getting released that, you know, I'm not going home to you. I'm not going home to my parents. I'm going to go and I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to do this by myself. You know, so we, I went to sober living. It's interesting because you, you, you grew up on the streets. Mm-hmm. I mean, in and out, in and out. And there is a payment for living on the streets. It's a give and take. Right. And it, it's in everything that you do. It's a give and take. Um, you to give drugs, take drugs, whatever. It's a give and take. And then you find yourself in prison working on your recovery. And you've got a guy standing by you who's giving you support but not taking anything. No. It, and it goes back to that altruistic. I mean, he's he's doing it because this is what's right, and right. he wants to do it. Right, and it took me a long time to trust him. It took me a long time. Like, the first two years that we were hanging out and stuff, I lied to him, like, nonstop. Like, I, I mean, I could not stop lying. I didn't want him to think bad about me, and so I would just lie about who I was and all these other things. And um, And then he just kept on saying, come on come on, like, for real, like, get, get it together, you know. I, for one one person in my life that was showing me, like, come on, you can do this type of thing and stood by me and cheered me on to keep doing more and more and more. And um, I went to, after I got out of the prison, this is the last time I've ever been back to prison, um, I went to sober living and I said, this is it, I'm going to do this myself. Like, I'm going to work. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to be a productive citizen. I am not going to break the law. I am going to start hanging around people that are are good for me and not bad for me. Like, I finally started seeing my self-worth and what I was worth, and that's what I started working on. And so I got a job as a maid when I first got out and hated that job. 
God, I just commend any maid out there because that was the worst job ever. <laughs> and um, out of rehab, I moved furniture. <laughs> I, I worked like, for a furniture company. Wow. And I was a moving company. Yeah, it's just crazy what we do, but we do it because we know we have the capacity to, and we got to find that and make sure that we understand that for ourselves. And I also think there's a humbling aspect to that. You know yeah. what I mean? It's that hey, and and and, and for those who are out there who may be doing um, be a mover or a maid, it, it's a good job. You, you know what I mean? I'm not demeaning the job by any means, but an addict will often see things less than them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, there had to be some good times out on the streets with the drugs where you had a ton of money and mm-hmm. doing things that you thought were cool. And right. in, in, in your addict brain, you look in the mirror and go, this is what I deserve. I deserve to have, you know, front row tickets. I deserve <laughs> to have money. I deserve to have fast cars. I deserve this, this, this extravagant lifestyle. Correct. But you, but you don't. Right. You know, uh, and so, you know, you go, well, I, whatever job it's going to take to get me through this is the job I'm going to do. Right. And I had, so when I went to Sober Living, I had this mentor. She was absolutely a savior. She kept encouraging me to keep going and keep going and keep going. And um, she would commend me every move that I made. And um, finally, one day she came to me and she says, you know, I've got a job in a treatment center. She says, you would benefit by telling your story to others and letting them know that recovery can start and can be possible. So I got my first job in a treatment center as a peer support. And um, I started to learn how um, working in recovery works. And then I went back to school. Um, to get my substance use disorder counselor degree. For those who don't know, peer support, what, what, what does that job entail? So peer support is just kind of like a mentor towards you. Like they understand, like they've been in your shoes. They have been there. They know. They know what you're going through. And they're there to help walk you through and hold your hand and be your biggest cheerleader. And that's basically what a peer support does. Like they they set, help you set goals. They help you um, achieve your goals. They they set dateline's. You know, like you're going to achieve this this goal this date and we're going to work towards that and then they start celebrating those you know those victories that you have and so you start feeling like alive again like you feel like you are a person again and I had that with my mentor like she made me feel alive again and she gave me my first job and then I've um, over the last three years I've progressed into I've worked at four different treatment centers and um Man, it it's it's like you were talking like the altru- altruistic. I yep. can't say it either. Um, it's like that benefit you get. Like you, like I learn more from them than they do me. Like I go into work and I just sit with somebody and my heart just breaks for them. But I learn like, oh gosh, you know, this is an amazing, amazing experience I'm having with this person. I'm bonding with somebody that needs me, and you know. It's like that acceptance that I was always wanting of belonging. And it's become my passion now working in recovery. I've helped other people like Manny was on your show. I've Mm -hmm. helped him get his first job in, you know, treatment and stuff, working in treatment and that. And it's just now. So, so speed, like speed, like the process up now, the last three years, um, I've been with the same man and he has shown me compassion. He has shown me unconditional love he has supported me he's encouraged me he's he's like i he's been my biggest cheerleader besides my mentor that i've had and um and now like 
like you know you hear those success stories and i don't know if it's really success i would call it but oh it's success but damn does it feel good to oh, be where success. i'm at now you, yeah. and like i like i we've set our goals like um we wanted to get a house we got a house you know we wanted to do all these things and i've got two little dogs that are like my kids like now i'm responsible for something um i've started to build a relationship with my daughter which is it's hard cuz we like i i was never a mom to her and so I don't know how to be a mother, but I'm working on that and trying my best to do the things that I possibly can to be a mom. And I have a, the best relationship with my parents. My mom is like my best friend. Um, we talk and we talk and we talk. And now next week, because of everything that I've set in my life, and I have finally found that love and acceptance, not only with my with my soon-to-be husband, because I'm getting married next week. Oh, congratulations. So, nice. <laughs> um, we're getting married next week. Um, I found it with him. I found it with my family. And I found it with my job. And, and so I found it with myself I think that's also. that's success in all the most important areas of life. So yeah. what are you currently doing now? So right now I'm a mentor at Corner Canyon Health Center. Um, we basically focus on people that are in from anywhere from 18 to 30 um basically giving them life skills like we accept all lgbtq like we're we're very diverse in that way and so we have a lot of people that come in that are you know figuring out which if transitioning basically transitioning into what they want to be and um yeah like and then even at my job I've got a mentor that he's he's amazing named Dom um, he's given me this opportunity to work for him. We worked at a different treatment center together, and then he got the program director at um, Corner Canyon, and now he brought me on. And, like, it's, like, it's the most amazing thing. Like, I don't regret getting up to go to work every day. I get up, and I'm like, okay, I got to go. I got to go. I even go and work extra hours because it's so rewarding. The things and the, you know, the, my fa- this is what I always tell everybody about my job is that, you know, I see them come in wounded. And then I see them do the program, and they go out like a butterfly. And they're just flying, and they're amazing. And that is the most rewarding part of my job is to watch the tr- that transformation and how they get it. And then how, like, they become different people. And, it, you know, and it, I I don't want to take credit for it, but, like, it's it's such a good feeling to know I was a part of that. I that love it. I, you know, I, it's, a, it's a bonding thing. It is. And, you know, I think you should own your part of it. I think that the biggest, I mean, I, I, the thing that I'm tuning into that you've overcome even more than your addiction is your self-concept. And it sounds to me like the power of one good friend uh, and then another and then another has really helped you change uh, the concept that you have of yourself. And so to keep that ball rolling, I think it's healthy for people to own their role in positive outcomes. We can share it because usually it's a group effort when we have positive outcomes. If you have one person come in wounded and leave like a butterfly, there are a lot of people that help that person along the way. But you definitely need to own your role because that when you know what you do and you know you do it well, and if you keep doing it, it benefits other people. And I, can you feel like the oh, yeah. energy coming oh, off yeah. her? It's no, like it positive. It exudes and, it. Yeah. So I can tell that that's very authentic. Your story is amazing. And, and I think it – there's unfortunately a lot of people out there that might – have some of that be similar to their story and relatable to their story. There's a lot of people story. that hold on to trauma for, for their whole lives. And, 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 and you can see here 
the power of what happens when you work through it and you don't keep it to yourself anymore and you reach out for help. It's it's transforming your whole life. But you can also see the power of trauma not being addressed and yeah. what it can do. It caused a 28-year run for you. Oh, yeah. uh, running and gunning, as they, they say in the streets. And uh, looking for love uh, in, in a bad country song in all the wrong places. And, you know, you were out there trying to find it. And you did end up finding it. And put in the work and did what need to be done and here you are and ready to give back to those who gave you something correct and you know like i i did i i went through the 12-step program also like i did i did all these steps to get where i'm at today to be the person that's um that's that can be productive um like i still have my moments like i still have character flaws that i work on but the difference is now i can recognize them and i work on them um, before it was hide them, hide those character flaws, don't let anybody see them. And now the different transformation for me is like when I when I do something, like I I figure out a way to correct it, and I figure out a way to fix on myself. And that's that's basically how recovery is. Like you know, once you recognize your character flaws or your character defects, and you can work on them, amazing blessings come back to you that are way beyond what you could possibly imagine. Did you ever imagine that your life would be this good? No. No, I didn't. And if I would have, li- like when you said you concentrate on the 2% and you got the 99%, if I would have listened to all the law enforcement officers that were telling everybody, oh, she's never going to amount to anything, or she's never going to be this, or she's never going to be that, you know, and I have family members that say the same thing, and I still have family members that have doubts in me, you know, and, and that's okay. That's okay. Like, I don't have to prove anything to anybody, but... I continue to move on type of thing. And I don't listen to all that negative anymore. I focus on the positive. I mean, there negative things happen all the time. Like people cut me off in the street and I get road rage. You know, these two type of things, but I fix them. And that's the difference is like my life is so good because I fix what comes in, what I face now. Like I, I, I avoided it for so long and now it's like I, I face it head on and I just do it. Confidence. Yeah. There's a lot of confidence. I love it. Right now. And I think that that comes from working on oneself and going from, you know, believing that you were a damaged person to knowing that you're a person of high worth and value and that you have the confidence to work on your shortcomings. And we definitely all have shortcomings. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your story. You're an inspiration. You're amazing. You're glowing. You're beautiful. Congratulations on your upcoming wedding. Uh, And we're now glad to say that you've been on the podcast and you're part of the Project Recovery family. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, in case you forgot, uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. And it is what, Dr. Matt? It's a KSL production, Casey Scott. Are you going on a honeymoon anywhere? We are going to Mesquite and down to St. George. We got a condo in St. George, though. So there you go. We're going to go spend some relaxing time and get just a little enjoy warmer it. weather, huh? Yes. Love it.
contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.